Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my huge pleasure to welcome to the pod today, Professor Serena Nick-Zainal, um, who's a friend and collaborator of Genomics England and a world-leading researcher and clinician. Um, Serena, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for the invitation to come on the podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, it's really great to be here. Super. I should say for those listening to the pod and not having the, the pleasure of seeing you that you're wearing a fantastic beanie hat. Um, <laughs> and metaphorically, you're a lady of, of many hats. You're a, you're a consultant in clinical genetics. Um, you're a professor of genomic medicine and bioinformatics. Um, you work with Cancer Research UK. You've been at the Sanger Center. You practice at Addenbrooke's, won the Steiner Prize, um, all sorts of other prizes. You gave the Royal Society lecture last year. You know, we could go on for 20 minutes, but we'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, um, I love to start with just a bit of context about, like, who is Serena? Not everyone is born kind of giving the Royal Society lecture. Like, if you rewind to kind of um, five-year-old Serena, draw a quick line for us from, from there to here. Um, thanks, Chris, um, for, for starting with all the embarrassing stuff first. <laughs> um, so for a five-year-old Serena, so, so I, I grew up in Malaysia. I'm from Malaysia originally. Um, I uh, had the good fortune of um, being sponsored by a petroleum company, Petronas, uh, rather better known for sort of Formula One racing and, and petroleum. But anyway, they sponsored medical students um, in, back in the day, 1990s. Um, so I came to the UK to do medicine. I went to boarding school for a year and a half. Um, having come from sort of ordinary wow. state schooling in the heart of Kuala Lumpur, I went to a boarding school in the UK. Um, and then it uh, was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, but then my next step was to go to Cambridge, um, which was weirdly more normalizing. Um, and um, in came to Cambridge to do medicine, finished medicine and practiced as a junior doctor. Uh, for a few years, um, and then, you know, entirely by chance, <laughs> I, I really can't give career talks, um, entirely by chance, I ended up doing clinical genetics, which was a relatively new specialty um, in or re relatively unknown, uh, largely about people with rare genetic diseases, inherited diseases, um, learning disabilities, um, congenital abnormalities. But every patient was a sort of insight into uh, a new disease biology, a bit of understanding about disease. But every patient also had a set of issues which were not necessarily just about a single hospital visit. It was all very holistic, right? If you have a genetic disorder, sometimes the impact is in many, many ways and impacts on many, many different people as well because a genetic disease tends to involve a family. And I just found it really interesting as a specialty. Um, and that's how I got into genetics. I didn't have a straight... Uh, career path at all. I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do, but I went for it. And when I was in genetics, uh, training as a, as a junior doctor in genetics, um, 
a new technology came to play, which was Array CGH. It wasn't even next generation sequencing, it was Array CGH. And as a junior, I found myself unable to fully understand the results that were in front of me. And I found that quite disempowering, right? So I'm sitting in front of a family and unable to explain something. So then I felt that I wanted to do a PhD in technology. Next generation sequencing was coming. I wanted to do something in that space. And again, you know, serendipitously, I uh, met with um, Professor Mike Stratton. He was at the time in the Cancer Genome Project at the Sanger Institute. And he said, well, come along and work with us. You know, it, we deal with thousands of mutations, not just one mutation, which is what we tend to deal with in clinic. And I thought that was highly interesting. And really, I've just gone with, with interest. And what sort of what sort of time period with this? So this is just as next generation sequencing is coming in. I guess like bring it to life for us, like a day in the lab at that point, or if a if a, a lab team was getting a result for a patient for one of these tests for the patients you were seeing, what would they actually be doing? So in, this was sort of two thousands. Okay, so this was uh, in the year two thousands. Now, in in sort of the past, people would be sort of in the lab trying to get sort of uh, pieces of DNA together and then sequencing small pieces of DNA. And, you know, to, to, to do the Human Genome Project, there would have been thousands of, or hundreds of labs doing it, thousands of these pieces of, of genetic material, and then everybody doing that bit of sequencing and then trying to suture it together. In the 2000s, when this next generation sequencing technology came along, people were able to just take someone's DNA, blast it to gazillions of bits, and then sequence every single piece um, in one sitting in parallel which is why it's called Massively Parallel, which I think is kind of a cool name. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just parallel, it's Massively Parallel. Um, but that's it, right? That was that big step change, right? So initially, you'd have thousands of DNA molecules and you get one readout from thousands of DNA molecules. And that step change was now every single DNA molecule was giving you information. And that's why it was all massively parallel. And so that was a step change. And, you know, what took 10 years to do could happen in, in sort of a day. I mean, that's that's quite a neat way of putting it, right? Quite a revolutionary uh, change. Totally, and I think as a as a junior at the time, I remember thinking, "Gosh, like this is where it's going to be. This is this is where the potential is going to be, right? This is going to change how we function as clinical geneticists." And I wanted to be there. I wanted to understand it. I didn't want to be somebody sitting in clinic, not really sure what I was doing. Um, and so I, I jumped in feet first into something I didn't really know too much about. <laughs> there was a lot of bioinformatics. I could barely double click. <laughs> I was a doctor <laughs> by training. Um, and, um, and at that time, whole genome sequencing was just about to start. Um, so I started in the lab, optimizing libraries, how to make the DNA, mole- you know, make the, the, the DNA preparation for sequencing. And then after that, this, the data started to come. There was huge amounts of data. I just had to learn how to do um, bioinformatic analysis. And it was hard, but it was, you know, it was something that could be learned. And actually, I didn't spend a dime learning some of these bioinformatic skills. Everything can be learned from Google <laughs> and from courses in the university. So uh, there I started to do bioinformatics. So there's this huge piece, which is data processing, right? You get these gazillions of pieces of DNA information and you have to make some sense out of it. That bit of data processing is huge. It's hard. It's difficult and it's time consuming. But at the end of that process, you have data, you have mutations that you can use to study human genomes. Um, But that's where the fun really began for me. I was like, wow, there's thousands of mutations per person and everyone's tumor. I only had 21 patients, which doesn't even sound like many, um, but 21 women with breast cancers, that's what I had in my hands. 
and every woman had a completely different looking tumor. And it was such an insight into how diverse human cancers were. And we had this mindset, which was breast cancers were in these three categories. And yet here I was looking at 21 highly individual cancers. And I was hooked at that point. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing for, you know, the next five to 10 years. I'm loving this. There's just so much to see and learn. So, you know, that was my sort of long convoluted, not exactly very well planned journey to where I am today. Today, we do a lot of cancer genomics. We try to figure out human cancers. And uh, and I was so pleased to hear about the, you know, 100,000 Genomes Project with Genomics England, because this was a revolutionary project across the country to actually use this technology that we were playing with at that time to actually take it to, to patients. So that, that was, uh, and that's how we started working with each other. Yeah. Very cool. And let's, let's, let's pull the thread a bit, if we can, on that moment of realization, you starting to piece together these 21 whole genomes um, for these 21 uh, women who've had breast cancer. You have that realization as it starts to come into focus hold on a second these all look completely different from each other help us understand where that research has gone and what we can now understand about breast cancer and other cancers on the basis of understanding you know what we might loosely call the sort of signature of of those tumors sure thing so um so a cancer genome has um not just one or five or ten mutations which is where the sort of the the scientific community was sort of 10, 20 years ago, we tended to just look for the one, five, maybe 10 important mutations in cancers. From whole genome sequencing, we can see that there's tens of thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands, and in certain tumor types, millions of mutations per cancer genome. And it's worth maybe saying right up front that when we see a patient who has cancer, we'll sequence what we call the germline, which is like their normal genome. And then we'll also sequence the tumor, which has like a different genome because the DNA is so different, right? So we think, so someone's uh, got, you know, their own, their own DNA and then the cancer DNA, these two different things, right? Yes. Sorry. I should probably have said that right at the start. Absolutely. So when you're, when you're born or when you're created at conception, you've inherited this genome from your mom and your dad. And that pristine genome, you know, it actually mutates all the time. Even when you're an embryo, it's constantly mutating, um, which is sort of a, a kind of a frightening thing to think about. But actually, the human genome is so large that most mutations don't really matter. Um, and, um, you know, like we've heard about the COVID-19 virus, uh, you know, and how that's accumulating mutations. It's actually relatively normal to have some mutations, but most mutations don't really matter. The problem with a cancer is that it's it's so different. It's got so many mutations, and some of those mutations are so are, are quite important. It's contributed to to the growth of that tumor. And so, the premise of cancer genomics has always been finding out. You know, you sequence the tumor and you sequence the DNA from from the blood as a representation of the the original genome at conception, that that germline, the clean DNA, as it were. And try to see all those differences and try to understand what is it about this person's tumor that has driven, uh, uh, you know, tumor formation. And I guess the last sort of three or four decades, people have focused on this concept of driver mutations, which is, you know, one, five, maybe 10 mutations that are actually causing the cancer. And and that's been really important in cancer uh, research because then people have created drugs to those specific mutations. So if you know that one mutation is driving a cancer, if you targeted it, then maybe you could kill off that cancer. And that has been 
pretty effective in some diseases, right? So we know that in 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 um, some of the leukemias, uh, the BCR able is a target. Um, in breast cancers, HER2 is a fantastic target. So so there are several examples of that paradigm working really well. However, there are so many other thousands of mutations in a cancer, which I guess a lot of people thought of as passenger mutations, sort of debris, just noise, just an accumulation of, you know, um, yeah, just detritus. There's a, there's a sort of theme over the last 50 years of genetics and genomics, isn't there, of like, anytime someone says, oh, this stuff is just junk, junk DNA, or this stuff is just, oh, these are just the passenger mutations, you know, don't worry about those things. Turns out, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, and that was my PhD, you know, and um, actually, I do remember being sat down a couple of times by uh, important people in the university. And, and I said, oh, I wanted to do whole genome sequencing and look at passenger mutations. And the profs go, now, Serena, the rest of the world is studying driver mutations and you want to study passengers. <laughs> Why are you foraging around the bin of mutational detritus? And it turns out if you forage around people's bins, you actually learn quite a lot about their lives. So, you know, it's, um, it was, it was fab because I had no competition. It was great. There was no one else in the world foraging around the bin of mutational detritus. So, um, I had, a tremendous fun at the Sanger. <laughs> we were, we had no competition. We could do as we liked. Um, uh, looking at these um, thousands of passenger mutations, because of course, um, you you can learn quite a lot from 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 um, looking at those uh, mutations. So it's a bit like I, I tend to use this analogy about footprints on a beach. Like you know, a beach could have uh, what looks like just random footprints everywhere, but if you took the time to study those footprints. You could discern a human footprint from an animal. You could see the direction in which, you know, the person or the animal was walking in. You could tell whether it was, if it was a human, whether it was a child or an adult, you know, roughly how tall they were from their stride length. You could tell whether they were walking or running. So actually studying the footprints on a beach, studying mutations in a cancer genome could tell us something about the disease processes that are going on in that tumor as it goes from being a normal cell to a cancer cell. And that's the principle of mutational signatures. These are mutation patterns, imprints that have been left behind by the things that have been going wrong in that cancer cell. And, um, and that's what, um, we started doing at the Sanger Institute. So that was, um, under the supervision of, um, Professor Stratton. I worked with a colleague called Ludmil Alexandrov. And we messed around. He was a mathematician and I was a doctor learning bioinformatics. And we messed around for the first couple of weeks, not really knowing what we were talking about. And eventually we got there, <laughs> explored a lot of different models and machine learning, this, that and the other, and eventually came up with a way of using all the whole genome data and finding these patterns, finding these signatures. And so, um, you know, the question is, right, okay, so you find the patterns, are they useful? Yeah, so what can they, what can they tell us? Yeah, for that sort of Sherlock Holmes clues, right? Right, yeah. You know, is, is this purely academic or is this actually useful? Um, and it turns out at that time we had the 21 patients that we could distinguish the patients who had inherited genetic defects in BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are these genes that we know cause an increased risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. So the mutation signatures and mutation patterns could distinguish the patients that had BRCA1 and BRCA2 defects from the ones that didn't. And that was really profound for us. We were like, wow, it's really clear. In only 21 patients, 
that's not very many cases and yet it was already distinguishing but the key thing that made us go wow was um that one of the patients um she was 32 years old and um she had no history of a she had no family history of of breast and ovarian cancer but 32 is very young to have that cancer and she had the signature and that was like wow okay she's got a signature but she doesn't have BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations and that's when we started to dig so she didn't have a family history she'd never been for germline genetic counseling and then we found that she did have a germline mutation in BRCA1 and there was suddenly a, an important clinical impact you know we had to feedback that information to a clinician and to her family etc and that's when we realized it's quite powerful we can use the signatures to go backwards to actually make diagnoses in patients that have an impact on their families um and yeah and and that's how we we figured out that actually this this could be quite clinically useful wow huge um those those great sort of um aha moments right that you work so hard for <laughs> um and you've talked about getting your head around these big data sets these bioinformatics tools um and so on here we are in 2022 you know what's the toolkit that the contemporary cancer researcher draws on and and how can we what needs to be true to keep improving those tools um huge question chris oh my god i could talk about this for an hour um you know we'll do a series <laughs> do a series yes please um so when something's really new when something is so new that it's um in its exploratory phase i think you need to make it amenable to people to explore with as many other you know statistical and, and computational tools as possible and the only reason you need the computational tools is because the data sets are too large to do it any other way if your data sets nice and small and you can manage it uh, um simply you know doing using excel or whatever then that's great but a lot of times with whole genomes the data is you know in the tens of thousands it's just it's just not possible and the main reason you need the computational skills is to be able to manipulate the data you need the statistics to be able to know whether what you're looking at is is significant or not is important or not um but that really is largely in the exploratory phase once we have and many other groups around the world have played with the data and figured things out and sort of pulled it in all directions I think you do come to a steady state of understanding cancer genomes. So there's going to be going to be at this point in time there's going to be this list of things there are this list of mutations that are important drivers and actionable or can go into clinical trials or will have an impact on, on clinical care. There's this list of signatures that could have an impact on clinical trials or clinical care. And then um the rest is still under exploration. And but that is science, that is medicine and that's how we operate. There are things that we know and things that we are still learning. and we have to be comfortable with that and you know the, the key thing to make it amenable for use I, guess, i suppose is making it accessible so ensuring that people don't have to to that the bar to entry the bar to accessing that data and using it isn't too high and actually once we know it and understand it we just need to create the tools to make it happen easily and quickly and then it it shouldn't be it shouldn't be an, an issue right it shouldn't be a big deal and we think right now in genomics i guess because we know and hear so much by things like podcasts and on in the internet and all the seminars we have watched genomics grow from nothing to where it is now and it's quite intimidating for the average doctor or even you know uh, for a gp i mean a gp who's not working in genomics sitting there going i don't know anything about bioinformatics but actually there's no need to know how to be a bioinformatician 
as a clinician, as a doctor, all you need to do is understand some of the principles, know what some of the caveats are, but then be directed to the bits that are really important for clinical utility. And I think it is doable and it is achievable. That's that's fantastic. And I, I guess if I had to explain to someone in detail how my laptop worked, I would probably struggle after you know a minute or two, but I can use the laptop to achieve all sorts of helpful things like doing podcast interviews or sending uh, emails or whatever. Yeah, we all know how to use our iPhones. We don't necessarily have to understand how they made the iPhone. We just know how to use it. And that's that's it. It's just about making it accessible and usable, right? And so you mentioned that these data sets are getting bigger and bigger and that we increasingly need to have a model where the researcher goes to the data, um, both because of data size and privacy and security and so on. Um, and yet, kind of the more data, the merrier. How do we reconcile those two things? So, I mean, we've got a very early stage pilot project at the moment trying to what we call federate or sort of link two data sets between Cambridge and Genomics England. Just tell us a little bit about that and why that's interesting and, and important for the field. Sure. So I, I think it's been so interesting in the last 10 years to watch data sets grow all over the place. Everyone's got their own data set growing. And Genomics England's a fantastic example of a data set that's gone from zero to 130,000 in the space of less than 10 years. Um and I guess because there have been many data sets that have been growing up across the world, suddenly there are all these pockets of data. Some people call them data lakes. They're just collections of data that actually, if we could put them together somehow, um, would give us more power um, to be able to make new discoveries, to find new things, or will permit us to validate findings. So if you find something in one data set and you're not really sure whether it's a real thing or not, if you could access another data set and test to see whether it's there, it just helps you if it is there, right? So there's a lot of power in combining data sets. And right now, we don't have very good infrastructure to be able to do that. And um, I was really pleased to connect with Genomics England to sort of say, you know, how do we make that happen, right? Between, say, Cambridge and you guys, because we have lots of data here. Um, you guys have lots of data there. How can we make this a little bit easier for for many people to do research, not just people with big IT teams, we need to make this amenable to more people. Um, and so this idea of federation, which it isn't that new. I mean, I think in the UK, people are starting to, to think about how to do this um, is coming up. And this is a pilot project that we're doing with GEL to try to federate the, the Cambridge research environment, trusted research environment, which is secure um, and has de-identified information in it how we connect our site to your site to enable us to do research while actually maintaining the privacy of the respective patients. And actually, you know, it's probably better to, 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 to have a computational connection that has been purpose-built and has all the credential checks in place um, done properly rather than what we have these days, which is I've got to connect data here. I'm going to bring in data from outside or I'm going to move data across. And actually that action, activity of moving, shunting data across is, is not, you know, not, not a good thing to do really. Um, and so it's an opportunity for us to think through how we have the processes set up safely, think about the sort of the governance of uh, uh, clinicians and researchers accessing that data and, and yeah, how to do things more efficiently, more effectively and safely. It's, it's great. And it's one of those 
nice examples of kind of learning by doing because you know federating data sets is one of those things that looks great on powerpoint and then you actually try and do it in the real world it's like oh there's all these things we need to learn how to do so we've talked about huge data sets um we talked about trying to um get the right level of access to them to kind of maximize the return the kind of scientific and clinical return on um all of the work that's involved in putting data sets together there's this big um, historic and contemporary uh, issue with a lot of those big genomic data sets that you mentioned around that many of them being predominantly um, the genomes of people of what we might loosely call kind of European ancestry. As a sort of practicing researcher, maybe the first question is help us understand why that's a problem. Um, and then you know, how can we think about, you know, we've at Genomics Inner just launched this this big multi-year program to try and ad address this issue. <laughs> I guess any advice uh, for us or sort of thoughts on what you would like to see as, as, you know, we explore these topics with the community over the next few years? I'm not sure I have uh, uh, solutions or suggestions, but I, I, I can I can say something about um, why we are where we are today and then how we can try to 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 um, to remedy that. So I mean, I, I you know I'm a I'm a researcher from another part of the world, uh, which is hugely under underrepresented in scientific data sets. And if if populations are underrepresented, then we don't learn about them. Our knowledge is then skewed to the populations that are studied, and that's of course not happened out of malice at all. It's just the accessibility of samples and collaborations um, was in the past perhaps a bit more limited to people who did have the connections at the time. Um, and the wonderful thing about where we are today is that, and what the coronavirus pandemic has shown us, is that actually the world's quite small. We can make connections and we can do science and research across the globe very effectively. And so there's an opportunity here to sort of revisit how we do science and how we reach out to other communities to join us in that process of doing research. So, you know, I, I think it's just been historic that there were just easier connections in the past and we have tended to perform research in sort of Western populations. In our cohort of 560 breast cancer genomes um, that we hold now in Cambridge and the Sanger, that was quite a mixed cohort. Actually, we, we did quite work quite hard to sort of bring in East Asian cohorts uh, but still, you know, relatively limited to, to certain countries in East Asia. And I think it is important to include them because they do have different genetic backgrounds um, that may have an impact on the likelihood of seeing one thing or another. We know that from epidemiological studies that certain cancers are more prevalent in certain populations. And what we don't fully know is whether that's entirely environmental or whether that's some combination of environmental and genetic. But if we don't study them, we'll never know that we need, do need to sort of explore those those areas. Then if we don't know what the cause is, then we don't know whether we're treating people as effectively as possible. So, you know, even um, sort of the, the different populations within this country, within the UK, you know, uh, we should be trying our best to uh, have a representation of research samples that mirrors the, the true uh, population, the, you know, the true sort of spectrum of ethnicities in the population. And then, then we can really say that we are we are studying the population of Britain. Do you have any any thoughts on how we best go about that? I mean, you've you've mentioned your efforts to make that cohort of cancer patients uh, representative. Is this something that you know researchers themselves can do? Who needs to be involved to actually change the I guess the reality on the ground over time? 
I think that's a combination of people required there. I mean, the researchers need to want to do it, but um, you know, it needs the support of sort of central bodies um, like yourselves. And I do know that you have um, drives and endeavors to try to increase the representation of other ethnic uh, populations in the UK. Yeah, it needs support from from the government as well. And then we know, I think you need the involvement of people who are in the community, so your patients and and the public, right? Um, leaders within the, the 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 population, they they need to almost vi- represent you um, and, and sort of go out to those communities and say, you know, if if you are approached about this research project, why don't you think about participating? You know, it's 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 open to everyone. And I think making people feel like it's safe and it's okay for everybody to participate is is uh, is, is, is important. But it, it does require a little bit of going out into the community to try to, yeah, reaching out, actually actively reaching out. Brilliant. Yeah. And I think that point about it's for everyone um, is so important. You know, the founding principles of the NHS and so on, kind of uh, equal access to, to top quality care, kind of um, free at the point of care and so on. And I guess maybe bringing, bringing us back to implementation in the clinic these incredibly sophisticated tools in research you know we have all of these high high definition images we have all of this genetic and genomic data rna and transcriptomics um, all of these different lenses that we can um, look through to get insights on a particular case bring to life for us if you when you're involved in a conversation about a patient um, these days how on earth do you or the the team that is helping that patient process all of this information how can you know you could do a mini phd on each patient these days right there's enough data uh, how did do, how does that actually work in the real world so this comes back to your question earlier about uh, you know how do you make it how do you just make it more accessible right so um we and we have to make it more accessible so we we are developing tools um to to enable that to, to make things more accessible so People don't have to have to be able to code. They can just click a button and you get the visualizations, you get the images. That's what it needs to be. And that's what we do have now. And we're trying to get that to a stage where anybody and, you know, we can teach the next generation of doctors to be able to, to use those tools. So, um, simple things, simple visualizations, teaching them how to look at things, how to interpret those visualizations that's what we need we need to do for 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 the next generation and and um you know it's a bit like radiology we don't know anything about the hardware and the software involved in generating the images but we teach our next generation of doctors to look at an to look at a chest x-ray and to say whether someone's you know got a, a pneumonia or or got um, um, some other, you know, problem with with heart, heart not pumping well, something called, you know, left ventricular failure. So we, we we teach our next generation to do that. We have specialists who then interpret it with very high, you know, uh, definition. Those are the radiologists. But everybody roughly knows how to look at, a, you know, an X-ray. And the same thing can and will happen with genomics. They don't need to understand all the bits about the bioinformatic pipelines and the algorithms, but they need to be able to look at it and go, yes, that's an important driver. Those are important signatures. This patient should be getting that sort of treatment. That's what we need to get to, and it's perfectly doable. In fact, it's it's funny. I was just talking to our chief scientist, um, Professor Matt Brown, um, over dinner last week, and he was telling me a story about when he was a younger doctor being in West Africa and doing a project that involved a range of things, including genomics, but also um, x-rays to try and help a community out there in, in West Africa. And 
someone said, oh yeah, no, no, the x-ray center is um, up in this place, kind of a couple of hours drive from here. And he drove up and there were, there were indeed four x-ray machines that had been kind of donated to the community kind of five, 10 years ago that no one had ever basically unboxed or touched. <laughs> so he literally found himself there with the instruction manual, kind of figuring out, okay, I've in, it's it's kind of going from that easy to consume world of like, I'm, I'm used to ordering x-rays and getting the x-rays back, you know, as a picture or as an attachment in my email or whatever to, oh, wow. Okay, now I have to plug this thing in, figure out how it works. And he said he took endless x-rays of his own hands and so on to try and figure <laughs> out how these machines worked, but did eventually get that. So, you know. And actually that is the challenge, right? For us, because, you know, people like me, we do all the fun, you know, exploratory bits. Um, I'm, I'm out there. I think of myself as like the person with a machete. I've gone to explore a new area and like, wow, this is this new, this new land, you know, the Americas or whatever. The, the real challenge is the people who then have to come along and build the roads, the highways, make <laughs> everything connect very quickly. And sometimes that cannot be done by that. In fact, that cannot be done by academics. That needs to be done probably by some input from private partnerships, right? Private companies and, yeah, I think, you know, that, that that's probably um, uh, be an interesting space to watch. I think we will need to learn, just learn how to partner effectively with um, private companies to help get those bits done because, you know, it's that's the boring bit, but a really important bit so that um, it enables more people. Yeah. I find the thought of you with a machete quite terrifying, but I, I love the I love the <laughs> metaphor. I love the metaphor generally. I do it with swords. Um, <laughs> <laughs> katana. Um, um, so... Just a simple question to to finish with: um, are, are we going to cure cancer? Or like, what what does that even look like? Does in you know, let's say in roughly my lifetime, I'm in my early forties. Um, I'm guessing you're somewhere in your like you know early to mid twenties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you want, Chris? <laughs> What is it? What does it actually look like to cure cancer? Does it just become a chronic disease, or like, do we? Can we just nail it? What can we realistically expect in kind of twenty-five years, let's say? Um, I think this is a very, very big question. You know, I'd love to think that we would be able to get to a point where I think in some tumor types you would be able to, if someone develops a cancer, deal with it, and it won't be any trouble for them anymore. I think that will happen for some things. It does already happen for some things, right? Is that always going to be achievable? Probably not. If we can manage cancer as a chronic condition, that's probably not a bad thing. I mean, you know, you have diabetes, you have cardiovascular disease um, that's managed as long-term um, problems. And I guess, I guess HIV/AIDS as well, right? The, in certainly in, in my lifetime, that's gone from something which is just fatal to something which is absolutely not fatal as long as you're lucky enough to have access to the meds and the um, and the interventions and so on. Yeah, phenomenal, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah, I think it's just how we look at it and. Uh, um, uh, well, what I'd like to be able to see, I hope, and I think I hope it will happen in our lifetimes, is that um, that we will start to learn how to use the totality of information that's available on tumors. And I don't just mean genomics; I mean any form of omics, yeah. including all the bits around the tumor, the microenvironment, the immune system. You know, very, very effectively. I, you know, I, I just think in the last ten years alone, cancer research has grown phenomenally it's been extraordinary um to to be involved in all of it so um yeah i think it's uh one to watch it's very it's been a real privilege to be to be in this space yeah fantastic well thank you for everything you're doing to make that happen um it's uh it's huge and thank you for making the time uh today really really appreciate it one one final question, which I promise is actually honestly easier than um, are we going to cure cancer? Part of the intent of these conversations is to 
I guess bring different voices into the conversation as genomics is becoming more and more part of the mainstream. As someone who is a researcher or a clinician, um, you know, thinks deeply about this space, what either topics or people do you think we don't hear enough from um, or about? Like, who, who, what themes should we address, or what, what people should we uh, invite to come, uh, come and share their thoughts on the pod? Wow, um, I think that. We hear quite a lot from people who are in positions of authority and, and power about about genomics, about cancer as well. We do hear from people like people like me who are like sort of you know scientists. I do wear a clinician hat, and also you know. I, I hate to tell you, but you may have some power. <laughs> um, but you know, lifelong lifelong underdog <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes. But also, I think as a as a mum and as a as a wife. Um, you know, you do you do see it from the other the other perspective as well. I think we need to involve the public earlier in the process sometimes, um, and not just the ones that we know come to us, because you know we talk about PPI involvement, patient public involvement, and engagement. But by definition, the people who do engage with us are the ones who are predisposed to engaging with us, right? It has all the same biases as epidemiology did. The women who come forward for the HRT trials are the ones who are motivated. Um, what we need to do is, and, I, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it, but, you know, what we need to do is engage with the people who are not, who are a bit more reticent almost, you know, sort of uh, not necessarily forward engaged. Um, how do we involve them so that they don't ingest information that is, that, pushes them in, the, in a sort of the wrong direction, as it were, because we've seen it with a pandemic, right? You get these polarizing views and then it's very difficult to bring, um, to, you know, a sort of a rational discussion to the fore. Of course, you know, with, with the, the biggest thing about genomics uh, is, is the data and the privacy of the data. And, you know, how do we, I think that's a really important thing for us to manage well in the next five to 10 years. How do we ensure that we can garner the confidence of the population um, and have them feel that they can talk to us and tell us what they feel about data, what their fears actually are. Um, and I think actually if we could engage and communicate in language that is simple enough, that actually there's very little in your genome that is predictive. Um, and um, it's actually quite hard to crack that nut of your, you know, your sort of personal uh, life. And, and you can probably find out a lot more about someone just from their Google history, um, you know, and from their Instagram and Facebook, right? Um, whether, whether go on Uber and <laughs> right, right. whatever, yeah. But it's sort of engaging so, with yeah. people early. Um, you know, I, I sort of use the Christmas lectures as a nice example. The Christmas lectures are mm. fabulous and you do sort of feel... Gosh, if we had that very early in the pandemic, we might be in a slightly different position in terms of sort of un understanding sort of the, the implications of things like lockdown and masks. But, uh, you know, it's... Um, yeah. uh, it's well, Jonathan Van Tam was brilliant this year, yeah, wasn't he, on fantastic. the Christmas lectures? Fantastic. Um, you go, oh, I wish we had that, like, you know, 18 months ago. Brilliant. You know, and actually, let's let's be creative and, and go out there and do, you know, do simple things like that but really engages everybody uh, and really easy to understand as well. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, one of the, one of the things we're thinking about is exactly your point about like, let's take it to the people rather than wait for the motivated people to come forward. I think it was Andy Haldane when he was the deputy governor of the Bank of England did a um, effectively a roadshow of the UK. So I think it was every fortnight um, he would go to 
a town, um, you know, Stoke or Newcastle or Exeter, um, and just sit in a kind of church hall or a venue somewhere and say, I'm here, I'm the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, I'm going to say a little bit about the economy and then I'm going to um, open up for questions. So, you know, maybe we should get a uh, genomics bus and uh, tour the country and just rock no and see what people say. That'll be yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> see you there. <laughs> we have to bring a piano and a couple of other musical instruments so that we can <laughs> jam like, along yeah, the, the way. The band bus. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Now that's an inspiring vision of uh, the future of genomics that we can all get behind. This is, this is the future of genomics you heard it here first people um <laughs> serena thank you thank you so much and um we'll we'll get the designs for the um for the for the band bus uh, to you fantastic cool. <laughs> well that's all for this episode thanks for listening to this discussion about the g word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. <laughs>